This is Maine Coast Doc Talk, a podcast bringing you the latest news and stories from Maine's working waterfronts. This podcast is brought to you by the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association. I'm your host, Ben Martens. Thank you for joining us today. We've got Patrice McCarran here from the Maine Lobstermen's Association. And just recently, there was a ruling from a district judge that has going to have some profound impacts on Maine's lobster fishermen um, and other fishermen in the Gulf of Maine throughout New England moving forward. And it has to do with right whales. And we're getting a lot of questions about it. I have a lot of questions about it. And so I was hoping that maybe you could walk us through how we got to a point where we have a federal judge weighing in on how we're going to be managing the lobster fleet in Maine. What's going on with right whales? Sure. Well, thanks for inviting me. It certainly is a hot topic. And inviting you into my, into my home office. <laughs> yeah. Yes, and mine as well. I know there are a lot of burning questions out there. It is a very complicated issue. So I'll give you a little bit of background and then try to tell you where we are now and potentially what we're facing moving forward. So this all started for Maine, basically for all of our fixed gear fisheries that have the potential to interact with large whales. And that would be that a, a whale could be swimming along in counterfishing gear and potentially get entangled and get out unharmed, get entangled and suffer some sort of injury, or get into gear and potentially perish from that interaction. So back in 1995, National Marine Fisheries Service formed a take reduction team for large whale species in the Gulf of Maine. The lobster fishery was at the table then because our gear was known to interact with these whales. And over time, we've put in a fairly comprehensive whale plan. It started with a list of options that fishermen could choose, a gear modification that would make the most sense for their business. It evolved into mandated gear options that scientists thought would be the most effective in ensuring that if a whale did encounter gear, that the outcome would be not negative for the whale. And so the, the really big pieces of this evolution happened in 2008 and then in 2014. So we had some smaller gear modifications, the start of marking of our gear. So if, a, if gear was on a whale, we'd have some sense of what fishery it came from or what region of the ocean it came from. But in 2008, they passed the first really comprehensive set of rules, which was to take all rope that floats that was set between gear on the bottom out of the water column. So typically lobstermen would set traps with rope that kind of floats up in the water column. And we basically took all of that rope and pushed it to the bottom. And, and, so, so, and so that's because fishermen, like when I talk to people about lobstering, they assume that for one buoy out in the ocean, there's one trap, but that's not actually how most fishermen are fishing, right? No, it's really area dependent and it changes a lot between inshore fishermen and offshore fishermen, but we have guys who fish one buoy to one trap and then two traps, three traps, all the way up to 25s and in some of, um, some of the offshore waters, as many, as many as 40 traps associated with two buoys. So there's a lot of variety. So sinking that rope between traps on the bottom took out a significant amount of rope. In fact, it's like 28,000 miles of rope came out of the Atlantic coast. And that was a comprehensive measure that was implemented from Maine all the way down to Florida for all fixed gear fisheries. 
And that was a very, very challenging time for Maine because our coast is unique when we look at Cape Cod Bay in Massachusetts or the Mid-Atlantic where sandy bottoms and flat gravel bottoms are common. Um, sinking rope to the bottom in Maine was challenging because we have a rocky bottom and it's difficult to get that gear back. But it was successful based on the whales that we know are finding themselves entangled in gear. We have now eliminated the rope that connects lobster traps from, from that database. So That was an impactful that step rule, that these guys took. Yeah, prior to that rule, there was ground line found on whales. And since implementation of that, they're not finding on right whales any ground line from lobster gear. The second big measure that we did was we took out 30% of our vertical line. So the line that goes from the buoy down to the trap. In 2014, we required a minimum number of traps on each buoy line in order to reduce the number of vertical lines in the water column. And that has also been very successful. When we look at the data on entanglement, so where we know a whale was entangled, where we know they were able to get the gear off of the whale, which is you know, not the majority of the case, but it is a very strong data point. Prior to 2010, we had about 14 cases of interaction with known lobster gear. Since that time, there's been one. So we can see very starkly that the implementation of these measures by fishermen in Maine and in Massachusetts and along the Atlantic seaboard and this applies to also our gillnet fishermen, uh, fishermen who might be fishing for slime eel or crabs or cod pots, you know, any sort of fixed gear. Collectively, we really have reduced the risk quite a bit. The unfortunate piece is that simultaneous to this, the ocean has changed dramatically. Ocean conditions have changed dramatically. It's affected the prey, the food that right whales eat. And it's it shifted to places that it's never been. So the whales are actually spending time in places that they've never been. They used to be very, very predictable, like clockwork. Hmm. We knew we could find them in Florida in the winter having their babies. We knew we could find them in Cape Cod Bay in early winter feeding. We knew we could find them in Graham and Ann. And then they just started not being there. And we had one year down south where they had five sightings of right whales, period. And so what they've done is they've transitioned into Canada, into the Gulf of St. Lawrence. It's emerged as a very important feeding ground. And what happened is, and the combination of what's not being able to find food and then getting fisheries that weren't regulated has led to a population decline. And so our fisheries here in the U.S. have a lot to reduce our interactions. We are now trying to manage our fisheries in the context of so a climbing right whale population. And so that is essentially where the lawsuit stems from. So, so there's all this work that was done over the years that was aimed at reducing large whale interactions. And while some of those, so some of those things sound like they've been uh, pretty impactful, but this is really about right whales that we're talking about. There's one species of whale that is really driving the bus on a lot of the decisions and discussion that's taken place over the past year and a half. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, so when we deal with the take reduction team and the whale plan itself that's on the books, that would apply to any strategic stock of marine mammals. And that has historically included right whales, humpback whales, and for a time, fin whales. 
fin whales have since uh, reached a point where their interaction has fallen below that level. So they benefit from the plan, but they're not a target of the plan. And then with the comprehensive relisting of humpbacks uh, about 18 months ago, they're now considered to be in good shape. So the focus has now shifted solely on right whales. And right whales, because they have been the most critically endangered species, has really always been the driving species sure. for the plan. The court case itself focuses exclusively on right whales. So that's a parallel process to sort of the management action that is an ongoing process that's been, that's been in place for more than 20 years. So can, can you, do you understand, can you explain to me like I'm, I'm 10? So we've got the Marine Mammal Protection Act and there are certain rules and regulations and things we have to think about with that. And then we've got the you know, Endangered Species Act and those two things seem to be driving to some of the same outcomes, some different ones. But so can you explain a little bit of the difference of those things and, and how that's impacting what's happening right now? Sure. So the Endangered Species Act certainly affects any threatened or endangered species we have in the nation. So any species that scientists have deemed is, you know, in a, in, in a really tight spot and is at risk of extinction falls under this plan. And right whales have been listed under the ESA for, for many, many years. The Marine Mammal Protection Act is similar. It says that as a country, we value um, the existence of our marine mammals. And if marine mammals are listed as endangered, they're automatically considered a strategic stock under the MMPA and they get additional protections. So they drive towards the same goal, which is to sustain these marine mammal species and ensure that if a human activity is gonna interact with them, that it does so in a way that actually doesn't endanger their the stability of the population or risk the decline of the population. And so the, the actual standard under each law is a little different. Under Marine Mammal Protection Act, the metric is serious injury and mortality. So it would allow for your activity to interact with the species as long as the outcome for the marine mammal is not a serious injury or a mortality. Unfortunately, commercial fisheries exceed that standard right now, collectively. Under ESA, um, you cannot have the potential to harm the species. So in the case of lobster, we haven't had any serious injury or mortality directly tied to a lobster fishery since 2002. But because we know that we also interact with the earth, in many cases, in many cases, it's a non-specific amount of gear. The fact that the gear has the potential to harm the whale is enough to hold our fishery accountable for additional measures under that law. So ESA has definitely a higher standard, and it also looks to, you know, might be reproductive. Uh, potential of the marine mammals, or might cause the species to exert additional energy it's carrying around here. So it looks at these sublethal impacts on the health of the whale, as well as you know whether or not the whale suffers a severe injury or death. So it's certainly more comprehensive. So there was a lot of work that was done between the states, between the federal government with user groups through a tape reduction team. There has been some work you know, to try and figure out a path forward. At the same time though, 
handful of environmental groups put together a lawsuit um, against NOAA Fisheries saying, you guys have not been doing your job to protect these species. And that was what the judge ruled on earlier this week. Can you just high, high level, what was that? And, and now sure. what's next? Sure. So the, the court case was actually filed in the beginning of 2018. It was filed by a handful of conservation groups as it was a, a trio of conservation groups. And then separately, an additional conservation group fired, filed a very similar case. And they were combined into one and the case went to the D.C. District Court. So that's sort of been packaged up since, like, say, March of 2018. The Maine Lobstermen's Association officially intervened in the case early that summer in 2018. We knew that it was a legal question of whether the federal government had fulfilled its obligations under several laws. They looked at the Endangered Species Act, the Marine Mammal Protection Act, and the Administrative Procedures Act. And our interest wasn't to influence the judge on the, the, the legal issues of whether the agency sure. was following the law, but to have a place in the case if the agency were found in violation of the law, that we would be able to help the courts decide what would ultimately happen on the water. And so that's what happened. The judge looked at the legal issues. He, in fact, only ruled on the Endangered Species Act portion of the case. He found that the federal government violated the law in part on a technicality. They had issued under the Endangered Species Act a biological opinion in 2014. And the purpose of the biological opinion is to say, if the federal government is going to permit an activity that has the potential to interact with an endangered species, does permitting this activity potentially jeopardize the existence of the species? And in 2014, National Marine Fisheries Service said, well, the lobster fishery does have the ability to interact with it, and it may cause some harm, but not to the point that it would jeopardize the species. And they said, we just launched the sinking line rule in 2019. And at that point, they were implementing the vertical line reductions, 30% uh, rope out of the water on top for Maine. And they said, with the implementation of this plan, we feel confident that the lobster fishery will not jeopardize right whales, and we should see the entanglement interactions go down from there. What in fact happened is the whole distributional shift of right whales and interactions from commercial fisheries overall actually increased during that period. So the court looked at the 2014 biological opinion. They've considered some information since then, and they've said, wow, interactions with commercial fishing have gone up. That's not looking specifically at interactions with American lobster, which is what the case is, is built upon. But the court said that nymphs, in effect, contradicted themselves. They said, well, on the one hand, you say the, the lobster fishery might interact with them, but it's not going to jeopardize them. And in allowing the fishery to continue, they needed to issue a permit, basically an incidental take statement. And the agency didn't do that. And the agency didn't do that because they were going through the take reduction team process to basically pull additional management measures onto the books. And they've been working to revise the biological opinion, which is scheduled to publish in 2020. It would ultimately replace the 2014 biological opinion. So there are a lot of things in motion. I think the, the fault of National Marine Fisheries Service right now is that 
the revised biological opinion was not completed soon enough to speak to the court's concerns about the deficiencies now going back to 2014. So the court said, you know what, you, you permitted the fishery, you did not put an incidental take statement on the books, so you're in violation of the law. Once you're in violation of the Endangered Species Act, it means that the federal government should not permit your activity unless a remedy is in place to ensure that your fishery, your activity continues in compliance with the law. And so that's the point that we're at. The courts have said the law has been broken. And so now we're going to move to phase two of the case, which is, so what do we do about it? So up until now, the court has only heard from the federal government in the environmental community. They haven't heard anything from fishermen. They haven't heard about what we do. They don't understand our track record with whales. They don't have some of the most recent data about the high level of interaction in Canada with shipping and with fisheries up there. So our job is to educate the courts on the fact that Maine has long been committed to saving these whales. We, we continue to be. And we want to have a voice in choosing that remedy because we want to make sure that the court understands the role that our fishery plays in the decline of right whales, given the broader context, given the number of other threats that, that the whales face. So we'll have the opportunity to do that moving forward as the court considers some arguments on what the remedy will be. Sure. I mean, that's, that's a lot. There's a lot of moving pieces in this. And <laughs> yes. I mean, I, so one of the reasons why I wanted to to have this conversation is one of the one of the outcomes of this was that the federal government was the one that was told you are breaking the law, you need to change this. But the federal government is going to essentially come back to the fishing industry now. That's where the that's where the impact is going to be felt is is on the fishermen and the fishing businesses and how we prosecute and participate in fixed gear fisheries throughout the Gulf of Maine, um, and George's Bank. And so as the Maine Lobstermen's Association and thinking about the state of Maine and what we can be doing, what we need to be doing, where, where do we, where do we go from here? What, what are the things that, you know, fishermen need to be thinking about and what are the things that our state can be, be doing? What are the things that people who eat seafood can be doing to understand what's, what's happening out there and make sure that we are doing the right things for all, all of our species, all of our communities, how do we build something better? Yeah, I, I, before I answer your question, I just want to touch on a point that you made, which is excellent and really needs to be highlighted, is that Maine lobstermen have been in full compliance with the law. Everything the federal government has asked them to do to protect whales, they've done. And in fact, the state of Maine has exceeded the mandate put forward by the federal government. We have a portion of our inshore waters that are exempt from the whale plan because whales are so rare in those waters, yet the state of Maine continues to require fishermen to take some mitigation measures in that area. And then on top of that, because so many of the commercial fishing interactions, it's very difficult to identify the source of the fishery. The state of Maine has stepped ahead of the federal government and is requiring greatly expanded marking of our gear here in Maine with a unique color. So if a piece of Maine lobster deer is found on a whale, we will know it um, and we will have the ability to deal with that. So, and um, for the record, 
bright, beautiful purple is our, yes. our color. It's we've, purple. We've, we've been able to watch a lot of fishmen splicing that in and on Facebook and sharing pictures of it. So it's, uh, it's been a project yeah. for a lot of the guys over the winter. They spent a lot of time um, coming up to compliance with that rule. Yeah, and so you do have to understand that the whale plan affects all fixed gear fisheries from Maine to Florida. And there is gear marking required for trap pot and gillnet gear. So when we looked at the color charts, um, pretty much the only color left was purple. (laughs) Good color, strong color. Yeah, so we're doing that. So moving forward, I think, you know, for fishermen, we have to ask for a little bit of patience. You know, we're coming into a chapter of unknowns, and there are three distinct pieces happening at the same time. The courts will act very likely, you know, we're looking at tentative schedules of July or August have been proposed. And we should expect that the court will ask the fishery to make some changes on an interim basis, probably sometime this summer. The nature of those is unknown, that's yet to be decided, but in order for our fishery to continue, the court's obligated to follow through on that phase. While the court's doing their work, National Marine Fisheries Service is busy finishing the new biological opinion, in which will allow them to continue our fishery moving forward. And that will contain its own reasonable and prudent alternatives. So the court calls it a remedy. The biological opinion calls it reasonable and prudent alternatives. And those will be contained in the plan. We hope that given that National Marine Fisheries Service is in the court, that those will hopefully be similar and fishermen won't be asked to do completely different things. And then in the third lane is the actual rulemaking under the Marine Mammal Protection Act, which we fully anticipate would align with what National Marine Fisheries Service would be looking for under the biological opinion. So unfortunately for our fishermen, we're not really going to know succinctly until the court acts on an interim basis. That will be our first glimpse but then we still have to wait for the biological opinion for the permanent management approach. And that's gonna take some time for the public, for the state. I mean, everybody needs to understand we are a fleet of small businesses and it is excruciating to try to plan your business when you literally don't know what your business model is gonna be. You don't know for sure what gear you'll be able to use, when you'll be able to fish, where you'll be able to fish, what modifications you might need. And this will likely unfold, you know, in the middle of a fishing season. The alternative is that the court does not find a remedy and MLA will be in the courtroom to ensure that we do find something that will work for whales and our fishermen because in the absence of a remedy, our fishery closes down. And, you know, I don't need to tell you the number of businesses and communities that are directly dependent upon the survival and success of the Maine lobster fishery. So we have our work cut out for us to do that. We've engaged a very talented legal team. We're in the process of trying to raise $500,000 to fund that effort. We're taking the long view of it that we need to get through this remedy phase and try to identify management solutions that will both save the right whale and allow our fishery to continue. Given the prospect that that's a very difficult thing to accomplish, we also wanna be prepared to appeal the case if we feel like the outcome is not going to be a viable long-term solution for our industry. So 
The association is planning to be fully prepared to put our best foot forward, try to resolve this through the current phase, but at the same time, we need to understand that the Endangered Species Act states that, you know, you will protect the species at all costs. And depending on how that's interpreted, you know, the lobster industry certainly bears a lot of risk, a lot of cost potentially that the law or a court doesn't need to bend over backwards to make sure that, you know, our needs are met. The focus is going to be on the right whales. So uh, we want to be prepared to see this through till its full end where we know we can coexist on the water with right whales. I mean, I talk to lobstermen all the time and right whales are very, very rare along our coast. They exist, but it's rare. And Maine lobstermen depend on natural resources to make their living. It's a wild caught fishery. And people are sick at the thought that they would be harming a right whale or killing a right whale. It's just, that's not who we are. So I feel confident that our industry is committed to solving this. The association is certainly prepared <laughs> and committed to solving this. We just at this point have an unknown audience. So we have to be prepared to go in and do our, our best work hope for resolution, but if not, be prepared to take this to the next step for our industry. Patrice, thank you. That was enlightening. There was um, <laughs> so a good. lot of information in that. <laughs> and, you know, and not that, not to minimize, but like, we are also going through a pandemic right now. Like, so for our fishermen, like they are, they're getting hit really hard right now in Maine with a lot of, of negative news and externalities that are impacting their business that you know, there's negatives and there's question marks too, right? And so like people are stressed about what they're losing. They're also, there's a lot of stress and anxiety about what the future holds for our working waterfronts in Maine. And, and so you know, we are just sensing that from, from a lot of the fishermen that we, we work with and engage with regularly, that the uncertainty is just, it's, it's really hard and scary. So I appreciate all that you've been doing for, for the industry and, and taking the time today to to help you know, educate, because that's, that's one of the things that we can try and help with is the more people understand where we are in the process, the better they can be preparing themselves and, and getting engaged where appropriate. Yeah, I, I thank you for listening. <laughs> I know it's a lot. I spared you the lawyers. Imagine you get that from me when I get uh, from the lawyers. It's I don't want to hear it. No. But, but these are uncertain times. I, it's not an overstatement to say that the future of our fisheries is on the line right now. Certainly the fisheries as we know them, you know, similar to your organization, you know, we want the next generation to have a future in these fisheries and, and we're whole, wholeheartedly committed to doing that. So I'm not one to beg for support, but we need everybody's support right now. We do need financial support. The ESA is not a law you want to be on the wrong side of, and we're very motivated to get our industry back into compliance and to do it in a way that we can continue to, you know, have our traditional industries see their success and have a future. So thank you. Perfect. Thanks, Patrice. We'll touch Thanks. base soon, okay? Yes, indeed. Bye-bye, everybody. Maine Coast Doc Talk is a production of the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association, an industry-based nonprofit that identifies and fosters ways to restore the fisheries of the Gulf of Maine and sustain Maine's fishing communities for future generations. For more information about our work, to make a donation, or to listen to previous episodes of Doc Talk, you can visit our website, maincoastfishermen.org.